Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expensive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Kelvin Ng from Yale University, and this is my co-host, Ahmed from Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Ronit Ricci, the author of Banishment and Belonging, Exile and Diaspora in Serendip, Lanka, and Ceylon, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Ronit Ricci is the Sternberg Tamir Chair in Comparative Cultures and Associate Professor in the Departments of Asian Studies and Comparative Religion at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She is also Associate Professor at the School of Culture, History and Language at the Austrian National University in Canberra. Over the past several years, she has been working to establish a new field of Indonesian studies in Israel, she teaches the Indonesian language and various courses on Indonesia, Islam in Southeast Asia, travel literature, and translation studies. Her research focuses on Islamic manuscript traditions of the Indonesian Malay world, Javanese literature, exile and diaspora in colonial Asia, and histories and practices of translation. She is the author of the multiple prize-winning Islam Translated Literature Conversion in the Arabic Cosmopolis of South and Southeast Asia. Ronit asks in this present book, Lanka, Ceylon, Serendip, merely three disparate names for a single island? Perhaps. Yet the three diverge in the historical echoes, literary cultures, maps and memories they evoke. Names that have intersected and overlapped in a treatise, a poem, a document, only to go their own ways. But despite different trajectories, all three are tied to narratives of banishment and exile. Welcome, Ronit, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you so much for taking your time to talk about your book. Thank you very much. Can you start start us off by saying a few words about yourself? Can you share with us how did your relationship with Lanka develop over time? Uh, Yes. Um, So uh, I was born in the United States, but I grew up uh, in Israel for the most part. Um, And I completed a BA and an MA in Indian Languages and Literatures um, at the Hebrew University. And when I finished my, towards the end of my MA studies, um, my mentor, uh, Professor David Schulman, suggested to me that I might think about the possibility of doing a PhD on Indonesia. Um, I had never been to Indonesia before. I I knew very, very little about it. but it was really the sort of the historical and cultural uh, and linguistic connections between India and Indonesia that inspired that idea. Uh, and I thought it would be a very interesting adventure. And therefore, um, I decided to study for a PhD. And I went to the University of Michigan, where I um, studied with Professor Nancy Florida. And I did a PhD uh, in comparative literature. Um, 
So um, that, that's sort of a little bit of my background. After that, I, um, after completing the PhD and living in Indonesia and India for a while, uh, doing the research uh, and going back to the United States, I studied and worked in Singapore and Australia. And uh, several years ago, I returned to Israel um, after living in the diaspora for, for, for a long time. Um, and I've been, like, like you said, I've been working here to, uh, to create or to, to, to establish, um, the field of Indonesian studies here in Israel. Um, now my relationship with Lanka, uh, in some ways is a repetition of what happened to me with my relationship with Indonesia, because, um, Sri Lanka was a country that I, I didn't really know much about, and I, I didn't have a connection to it, uh, prior to doing the research for this book. Uh, what happened was that while I was doing my PhD research, um, I read many books um, for my for my uh, prelims, for my exams, and for the writing process. And one of the books was um, Taika Shuaib Alim's uh, Arabic, Persian, and Arwi in Saradib and Tamil Nadu, which is a book about uh, mostly about uh, the Muslims' contribution uh, in Tamil Nadu and Sri Lanka to uh, literature in Arabic and a little bit in Persian and also in Arabu Tamil or Arwi. Um, I was reading this book and um, it's a very long book and somewhere uh, along the way I came, a foot, I came across a footnote uh, that uh, mentioned uh, exiles from Java to, uh, to Sarandib or to Ceylon, to Sri Lanka uh, in the colonial period. Uh, whenever, whenever I'm asked about the idea, the germ of the idea of this book, that's the moment I go back to because um, I remember being very struck by this footnote and being very curious. And I think part of the reason was that I had been studying about Indonesia for several years by then and taking history courses and uh, courses about Indonesian culture and literature. Uh, and I had never, ever heard about this episode of uh royalty, members of royal families from across the archipelago uh, being exiled uh, to colonial Ceylon. And the, the footnote also mentioned um, Professor uh, Hussein Mia, uh, who uh, was the source of this, this foot, footnote. And so I looked up uh, his writings. I, I found that he had written two books about uh, this community that, uh, of uh, exiles or descendants of exiles. Um, and I uh, decided that once I finish the PhD and I, I have time for another research project, I will try to go back to this uh, to this topic. And several years later, um, with the encouragement of Professor Hussein Mia, who uh, gave me some advice and, and gave me some names of contacts in Sri Lanka, I took my first trip uh, to Colombo, and that was in 2009. So uh, really between the first time I set foot in Sri Lanka and the publication of, uh, of the book, um, a decade passed. And uh, I spent much of my time during those uh, 10 years uh, working on, uh, on this research and creating really this, this relationship with, uh, with Sri Lanka and with uh, the Malay community there. Thank you so much for that. And now we have this fantastic book um, that kind of gets into some of what I want to ask in the next question, which is what the research process was like 
and how was your writing experience? Um, specifically, how does this book connect to or depart from your previous work? And did your questions and concerns about the cosmopolitan and the vernacular in Islam translated inform this book? Um, look, I think I think um, what we do um, in the present is always in some ways also, well, maybe not always, but often linked also to prior projects. And um, like I said, this 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 new project, this project in Sri Lanka emerged from a footnote for uh, of a book that I was reading for the Islam Translated uh, Project. Um, there are links in terms of thinking remaining in the same part of the world, thinking about connections between South Asia and Southeast Asia, uh, thinking about the Indian Ocean world, thinking about literature and questions of translation. But in many ways, it also felt like a very different um, project and and a very new field, really, uh, in terms of, uh, at least in terms of entering uh, Sri Lankan studies. Because like I said earlier, I um, for me, it was a new place, a new world, a new society. Um, and I really had, in many ways, to start from scratch. Um, and the way the research uh, proceed, proceeded, uh, progressed, was really... Um, in two, in two paths that were sort of parallel. One was uh, that I, um, I was working to create the database uh, for this research, um, and I had a grant from the British Library's Endangered Archives Program, which is a program that funds um, surveying and uh, preservation, digital preservation of uh, endangered or fragile materials all over the world. Um, and so they um, agreed to um, fund a process of uh, initially a pilot uh, project of surveying, uh, surviving Malay writing, surviving Malay materials in Sri Lanka. And after that was completed, a, a small sort of exploratory project, also a larger project of um, preservation of uh, Malay manuscripts, books, letters, and other documents. And all of this is now available, uh, uh, freely accessible on the British Library uh, website for anyone who is interested. So I was doing that. I was going to Sri Lanka again and again, uh, usually twice a year over, over several years, and um, trying to meet as many um, individuals and families from the Malay community across the island in order to talk to them and and see if they had any such materials, and if, if they did, if they were willing to have them uh, digitalized. Um, and that those explorations uh, took me all over Sri Lanka, from Jaffna in the north to Hambantota in the south, Colombo to Trincomalee, to towns and to cities and to very small, out-of-the-way places. Um, and that was, for me... Um, like I said, a, a way to collect the data for the research, but it was also a, a, a wonderful personal experience because I was welcomed warmly everywhere I went and um, I never encountered uh, anyone who had Malay writing or ma Malay materials who, who, you know, who refused to, to show them or to share them or to allow me access to them. Um, and gradually, I learned a lot uh, also from these travels because I met many people and I listened to their stories about their families, parents, grandparents, uh, things that were passed down through the generations um, that were not necessarily um, 
you know, not, not necessarily accessible in the written uh, documents. So that was one part of the research. And uh, the other part of the research was the more conventional part of um, actually reading these materials or some of them, not all of them, um, and also visiting the uh, National Archives of Sri Lanka in Colombo, where there is a small collection of uh, microfilms, uh, which were prepared by the aforementioned Professor Hussein Mia, who collected manuscripts uh, in the 1970s. And uh, those manuscripts were microfilmed at the time. Um, their quality is now quite poor, and some of them are um, no longer readable. Um, and the, the original uh, materials, the original manuscripts are no longer at the archives and uh, no one is quite sure where they are. Um, but anyway, I worked with these microfilms as well as much as I could. And um, I also conducted research um, in, in British and Dutch uh, archives for the book. Um, and of course, and this is a major, major part of the research, I um, searched for and read uh, Javanese sources, Indonesian, but mostly Javanese sources um, that had to do with the themes of the book, themes of uh, exile and banishment. Thank you for sharing uh, these insights about your research uh, process. Uh, and the story sounds very familiar for other people working on different parts of the Indian Ocean, to be honest. Um, the book is... Uh, quite rich and it has nine chapters uh, with an introduction and a very useful glossary. Um, the book is also very beautifully produced and richly illustrated. Um, I really enjoyed reading it and I would like um, to dive into the chapters. Um, so in the first, uh, the introduction, um, we start with Sorandi Blanca Silon, about which you ask, do the different perhaps distinct overlapping or competing names of a place shape the ways in which that place is imagined and the way its histories are told and retold across space, time, and literary cultures. So can you guide us uh, to your approach <clears throat> to the island's history uh, and its Malay population from the vantage point of the temporally embodied names of the island? How do you use this device or framework to narrate the long durée history of the island and its Malay population. Yes, um, it, one of the things that really struck me um, about this story, uh, this if we can call it that, this the story of the Sri Lankan Malays, and and like I say right at the beginning of the book, I think maybe on the first page or second page, uh, this designation itself is problematic. Um, you can't. You you have to use some de designation when you when you speak about a group of people and when you speak about a place. Um, but very early on, it struck me that these designations are both Sri Lanka and the Malays of Sri Lanka, which is what they are called today, are are problematic and they and they they mask uh, a lot of um, details and diversity and complexity. Uh, uh, behind them. They, they sort of present us with a veil that um, we need to sort of move aside in order to understand this history. Um, so uh, first of all, in terms of the, the term Malay, uh, we know uh, that um, 
the ancestors of this, this community that's today called the Malays of Sri Lanka comes from very diverse backgrounds all across the uh, Indonesian archipelago. And there is evidence of that in many of the sources uh, where we find names of particular places and people that come from uh, the different islands um, of what's now uh, Indonesia, what used to be the, the Dutch East Indies. Um, so the designation Malay itself is um, is like an umbrella term, really, for, for something much more complicated. Um, and then when we, th- when we say Sri Lanka, of course, we're, we're thinking about the modern nation state. So what, what did we have there earlier? And what is the relationship of these different names to questions of exile and diaspora? So for me, um, one of the sort of things that I found early on, again, in, in, the, in the earlier project, even before uh, when I was still uh, working on Islam Translated, was that um, I read um, all kinds of texts, the Islamic texts, and some of them had to do with Islamic history or histories of the prophets of Islam. And this story about Nabi Adam, Adam, who, according to Muslim tradition, is both f- the first man, but also the first prophet, the story of him falling from uh, paradise or being banished from paradise uh, and landing or falling in Sarandib, which is the, the Arab name for uh, for Sri Lanka, um, that always struck me as curious. Um, why? Why? Why uh, of all places around the world? Why? Why would he be banished to Sarandib? Um, and so I read a little bit about that even earlier on, and I I realized that this is a very old tradition. This is it's not a I, I tended to think that maybe it's sort of the Javanese imagination that um, added it as you know as a as a detail to these stories, which which is something that often happens. We have many examples where sort of traditional stories are expanded or changed uh, over time or as they travel uh, to new uh, new places. But in this particular case, I, I, I discovered, I realized that uh, the story of Adam Nabi Adam falling in Sarandib was a very old tradition and a very sort of well-known tradition. Um, and so then when I started working on, on this project, I, I, I was curious as to what might it have meant for people who were exiled, as the Malays were, their forefathers were exiled um, during the colonial time from what's now Indonesia, from the Indonesian archipelago, Indonesian Malay archipelago, to colonial Ceylon. What what could it have meant for them to know um, that they were being banished to the place of banishment of the first human and first prophet of Islam? Did they know this? Did they realize this? And if they did, what did it? What might it have meant to them? So that that's that's the the sort of a little bit about the element of Sarandib um, and its relationship to to banishment, because uh, the banishment of Nabi Adam from Paradise is in some ways the the prototype uh, or the paradigm for all uh, human exile uh, later on. I mean, the the banishment from uh, heaven, from the divine realm to life on earth, to human life, to human toil, to human sadness and suffering, and um, is is a paradigm for many other exiles that. Uh, we humans have endured and continue to endure. Um, and, and, and something sort of similar happened to me also with the name Lanka, because I'm a, 
Ramayana lover, and I've been a Ramayana lover for a long time. Um, and I can't hear the name Lanka or Sri Lanka, or at least I couldn't. Um, now I have many more associations with the name of the place, but I couldn't hear it without immediately thinking about the Ramayana and thinking about Lanka as a place of banishment, as a place of exile for Sita in the Ramayana story. Um, and that also uh, seemed to me curious, like how, how is it that this single place, this very small island in the Indian Ocean, um, is connected both with uh, this paradigmatic exile in the Muslim tradition and with this um, foundational story um, in, uh, in Hinduism or in you know, Indian or South Asian uh, traditions. Um, and so it, it struck me that, um, and this is in some ways at the core of, of, of my book, it struck me that each of these three names, uh, Sarandib and Lanka, and of course Ceylon or Selong or Ceylon, as uh, you know, it was pronounced differently in different uh, languages, both European languages and um, South and Southeast Asian languages, but this Ceylon as a place of very important place of colonial banishment, so all three names are linked in one way or another to exile and banishment. Um, and, um, and that seemed like a very uh, interesting uh, theme to explore. Uh, and especially how would people who were exiled from the Indonesian archipelago, among them um, some very important figures from royal families from across the archipelago, from different kingdoms, different sultanates, um, and their retinues and their families and, and, and servants, um, what, would, what would it be like for them to be banished to a place that already has a history of banishment, a very significant history of banishment, which is linked to uh, important religious traditions um, and, and literary traditions? Um, and so these echoes of exile um, are already there in that place. Um, and it's important to, to mention here because um, it's not, not to be, I think, taken for granted because we know that, 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 that the Ramayana, the Ramayana tradition is very, very important in Indonesia. <coughs> that is, we know from other places uh, in the Muslim world that it's not, it's not important or uh, it might even be shunned, it, and and we can see in India that there are um, the popular popularity of the Ramayana is um, it, there. There may be some Muslim communities where it was important, or it may even be important now. But um, but it it doesn't approach uh, the importance of this uh, story to uh, Indonesian Muslims, um, and uh, this is important to to mention because. Um, people might assume or might think that the Ramayana is not really relevant to, to this story because uh, the Malays were, for the most part, a Muslim community. Not all of them, not every single one of them, but uh, the majority of people who were banished were Muslim. And with time, Islam really became uh, one of the sort of um, core elements that kept this community together. Uh, and the Ramayana might seem sort of... Mm, far away from, from a Muslim community. But that is not the case when we think of uh, Indonesia, where the Ramayana, and Java in particular, where the Ramayana um, 
has been a very, very uh, important um, uh, source of um, art, different forms of art, especially the shadow puppet theater, the wayang of sculpture, of literary production, of poetry, and also of um, political thought in some ways, and especially in the in thinking about how uh, kings, uh, the relationship between kings and subjects, for example, the relationship within families. Um, and so um, for me, I, 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 even though I had to search for the evidence and I had to, um, I mean, I couldn't, I needed to, to show that this was the case, but my assumption was that it was likely that, especially people from the courts of Java, from royal families uh, in the 18th century, would be late 17th and early 18th century, mid 18th century, um, my assumption was that there was at least a, a good chance that they would be, would have been familiar uh, with the Ramayana tradition and that the name Lanka, uh, Alenka uh, uh, in Javanese would, would, have ha- would have had a familiar ring uh, for them. Uh, yes. one, one, maybe one, maybe one, one final thing about this is that um, in thinking about these terminologies or this nomenclature, these different names, um, another sort of aspect of this was also thinking about the relationship between exile or banishment and return. Um, because um, these, these stories, these traditions that I mentioned, they, they also uh, contain in them this, um, I think, um, this notion that um, exile and return can... Um, can be situated on continuums. They're not necessarily, um, you know, on the opposite ends. Uh, they can be closer than we think or than we tend to imagine. And so, for example, if we think about Nabi Adam's banishment from paradise to Lanka, to, to Sarandib, um, and by the way, the, the, the mountaintop where he is uh, said to have landed is, is called uh, Adam's Peak today. Um, we can think of his, of, of the, the Malays arriving in colonial times as not just being banished to Ceylon, but also as returning to a place, uh, to the place where Adam first, uh, stepped on earth or where the first human first, uh, descended to earth. Um, we can think about Sita's, uh, banishment to Lanka and her return, um, as, um, as, her return, which was supposed to be a time of joy and, and peace, uh, as something that turned into, in, at least in many of the Ramayana uh, versions, um, into a sort of uh, internal exile, where she re- she returns with Rama and she returns to Ayodhya, she returns to her uh, previous life in in in, in the palace, um, but in fact it is a uh, an exile of sorts because of the suspicions against her and because of the uh, suffering she endures until she decides to finally um, return to to and be swallowed by the earth. Uh, and then, if we think about uh, the Malay community, the forefathers of the Malay community, we have quite a few uh, examples of people who were banished uh, to Ceylon uh, and spent the rest of their lives there, never returned to Indonesia. But we also have examples of people who were uh, allowed to return. Uh, and then I tried to also follow the, in the footsteps of some of those figures uh, as much as that was possible to see what it was like to return. Um, and we also have um, some examples of 
um, members of royal families who were banished, returned to Java, and then were banished again. Um, so, so throughout their lives, they experienced both exile and return, sometimes multiple times. And finally, we have their um, returns uh, that are um, not returns in life, but returns in death. That is, there, there are people who are including very some very important figures who passed away in exile in Ceylon, uh, but then uh, were sent back uh, for burial. Uh, in Java, and there are some very interesting stories also surrounding those returns. So it seemed that in all three cases, I mean, using all three names and and the sort of um, imaginings that accompanied those names and those histories, um, we can also think about the relationship between banishment and uh, and return. Mm-hmm. I find the book really useful in thinking about how to write island history in the Indian Ocean. And as you just mentioned, in talking about exiles and return, another strategy in writing this book was writing a connected history that is not merely focused on the island itself, as islanded, as we may say, but also views from the other shore, that of the Indonesian uh, archipelago, and in particular Java. Um, in your opinion, what can that tell us about the frontiers of the Malay world? And what does that signify for the Indian Ocean uh, writ large? Um, and how would you situate this book uh, within that uh, of diaspora studies within the Indian Ocean? Um, yes, well, where to begin even? <laughs> Um, Maybe I'm thinking think about I, a connected history of this island yeah, as, as yeah. not secluded from, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean, for me, it, 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 was, um, it was very important to, to make these connections, some of which I've, I've already mentioned uh, through the stories and through the images and, and through the different uh, religious traditions. Um, but um, like you say, it's, there's also the, the geographical, the sort of concrete uh, connections uh, within the Indian Ocean, um, and I think that um, I think that if we if we look um, only at one perspective, for example, uh, looking at the history of the Malays on the island, I mean that in itself is is a fascinating topic. But I I feel like um, if if we're thinking about mobility, which is a very sort of important trope in many of the studies, in Indian Ocean studies, uh, if we're thinking about mobility, then um, it's very interesting to think, um, not to think about the movement of people, but also about um, what happens on the, diff- on the different shores. I mean, some of the people ha- were moving around and going back and forth, and some of the people remained, um, for example, in this, in this study, um, I, I think about um, the people in Java who had relatives or friends or subjects who or kings who who left, um, and even if they remained on the Javanese shore, I think that the fact that some people that they knew um, were exiled or sent away uh, that had an impact also on those who stayed. I tried to think and, and tried to find sources that would explain also. What was the effect of this banishment on those who um, 
were less mobile in body, but maybe in spirit or in their thoughts or in their imagination, um, they, they were also uh, moving across the sea. Um, in terms of the frontiers, um, and, and, and vice versa, because the people who arrived in Ceylon continued, of course, to think about um, their places of origin, and they com- sometimes they often continued to long for them or to uh, write letters, some of which we, you know, we're lucky enough to have, um, and to hope to go back and to imagine and reimagine those places that they came from. So what I'm trying to say is that I think the mobility and the connection is real in the sense that people got on ships and they got off ships and they traveled. And that is a very important element in the story. But then there is also the, um, there are the imaginings and the thoughts and the longings and the dreams. Uh, and uh, in the book, I also, I talk about uh, dreams that also, um, you know, the, 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 the line between dream and and uh, reality is is very unclear. Is often very very unclear, very vague. In terms of the frontiers of the Malay world, um, it's it's interesting to see that this story of the Sri Lankan Malays um, didn't uh, play an important role um, in Malay studies in general. Um, when we look at uh, the sort of mainstream studies of Malay literature um, and Malay history, there is often, the Sri Lankan Malays are often noted, they're not completely ignored, but um, there's just usually just a few lines about them or something sort of very general that they, you know, that they exist, that they, or that they existed, that they were, um, that they're a small community, that they continued writing in the Malay language, but um, we, we, they're not really uh, or significantly included in studies of the Malay world nor in studies of Malay literature. Um, they're also missing, for the most part, from Indonesian histories. Um, this is something that uh, surprised me at first because um, I, I thought I would try and find the Indonesian historians who have written about this topic, uh, and I thought that there would be you know, quite a few of them, or that I would find uh, Indonesian history books where there is quite a bit of information about the banishment of of, uh, of people from across the archipelago to to Ceylon uh, and also to other places. But um, I found that this was not a topic that much has been written about at all. And then finally, um, if you look at histories of Sri Lanka, um, you. Uh, do not find uh, the Malays, or you barely find them uh, in in the sort of again. And I, I I'm talking about sort of the the typical mainstream histories. Um, so in a way, uh, this community was marginalized in different fields and different uh, kinds of studies. And I think that uh, what what this um, current study, one of the things that it shows is that um, we can significantly expand uh, the boundaries of the Malay world if we uh, look beyond the sort of the conventional sites where we, that we typically study. And this includes not just um, Sri Lanka, but also uh, the Cape, uh, and in recent, the Cape in South Africa, uh, where more or less around the same time, uh, 
people were exiled. Uh, it was also a, a Dutch settlement, and, and people from the archipelago were also sent uh, as slaves and as exiles to the Cape. Uh, and there are uh, more and more studies uh, in recent years looking also uh, at uh, what's the, the, the community that's called Cape Malays. Um, and this is uh, also part of, again, the, the studies in the Indian Ocean uh, on uh, uh, incarceration, forced uh, migration, like Claire Anderson's work or, or Carrie Ward's work. Um, so uh, in a way, a study like this expands the boundaries of the Malay world, but then it also um, connects uh, with other uh, other studies and other stories uh, across the Indian Ocean, from you know, from from Africa to um, to Indonesia and and beyond. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to say um, in terms of the connected history. Maybe that um, what one of the things I wanted to do uh, in the book is also connect the. Um, or, or introduce or, or highlight the voices of people that are often not heard uh, in, in, in the studies in studies of uh, of the Indian Ocean, of the Malay world also, and, and of the literature of the Malay world, the Malay Indonesian world. Um, and uh, of course, when we think about exiles, uh, we're, we're looking here at there's this tension uh, between the fact that many of these figures who were sent away were very very important. Uh, figures in their uh, societies of origin, uh, it, from Java and, and other places, we have we have kings, we have princes, we have heirs to the throne, we have queens, um, and many sort of relatives of of, of uh, these these within from within these families. Um, but then, when they arrive on the other shore, um, they they they're of course stripped of. Uh, of their uh, titles, of their um, lifestyle, uh, and, and and of power, and so they, in some ways, become uh, almost like subaltern voices, maybe subaltern kings, if something like that is is even possible. Um, and uh, we we have very very few studies that. Um, Sort of uncover their their voices and their thoughts or their uh, perceptions uh, of banishment, and and so this this is another element of uh, 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 that was important to me and that I, that I tried to bring out uh, again in looking at at trying to recreate these voices or these perspectives from the different uh, shores across the across the ocean. And I think you succeed in doing that quite well. Uh, so in thinking about banishment and exile, whether it's by Allah or by the Bhagwans or by the Dutch or the British, um, we access unusual sources, sources that usually historians think of as useless for writing history. And I find, I find your book quite um, imaginative in strategically thinking through these sources uh, and using them uh, to write history. So can you introduce us to, to the Malay genres of the hikayat and the and the share um, to think about the relationship between genres, history, and literature. Yes, well, I'm I'm not officially a historian. I'm a, my my background is in comparative literature, uh, and I um, of course you know the, the the 
the work is very much embedded in history and in historical documents. But uh, first and foremost, I am interested in and I uh, look at these uh, literary texts. Um, but um, again, when we, you know, even our, our own definitions of what is literature and what is history, um, our, our definitions today don't necessarily uh, map on very easily or comfortably to earlier times. So um, if, if you ask me about these genres in, in Malay, the hikayat, so hikayat is, we, we, we nowadays, we, when we have to define it, we, we usually say that this is uh, uh, writing in prose um, because we're, we're contrasting it, we're often contrasting it with uh, more poetic genres. But um, hikayat is really a very, very broad term. Um, it's basically a story or a narrative um, but it covers many, many different things. I mean, we have hikayats, which are uh, telling us a history of a particular kingdom or a particular region. Uh, hikayat can be uh, a romance. It can be uh, um, an ad- a story in a- of adventures, um, and it often is. It can be a travel narrative. Um, it can be more of a political, um, political text. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to pinpoint, uh, anything specific, uh, about the hikayat because, um, it can, it can really cover almost any topic at all. Um, whereas the shair is, uh, poetry, um, and written in meter and often rhyming meter. And shair is one of the, um, some of the, the oldest, um, texts that we have in the Malay language, um, are shair. Um, and both of these, uh, you can tell from the from the names that they uh, probably derive um, from Arabic, uh, but um, but they they've they've taken on uh, their own character in the Malay world. Um, I I can give maybe I can I can maybe give an example um, of of the use of genres in in the some of these. Um, manuscripts that I that I was um, that I was exploring that I found um, in the homes of uh, Malay families in Sri Lanka um, so one of the um, one of the stories that I, I wrote about is called Hikayatu Angusti uh, which is a retelling in Malay of in Malay in Sri Lanka of um, the story of the Islamization of Java um, and I found I found it uh, very interesting because um, it's a it's a foundational story uh, in Java of the coming of Islam and the um, especially the participation in this process of a group of nine walis. They're known as the Wali Songo, and Songo is nine in Javanese. Uh, nine men who um, are are believed, according to Javanese tradition, to have brought Islam from afar to Java and. Um, and, and they're the ones who are credited with uh, convincing uh, the local population uh, that Islam is the true religion and that it should be um, adopted by the Javanese. And there are many stories and tales about them, and you know, they differ depending on uh, period and depending on a region within Java. Um, but uh, this hikayat that, w- that was found um, in, um, in Sri Lanka is... Um, tells the story of Sunan Giri, who is one of one of these nine. Um, and we could say that it's a combination, I think, of 
um, history, again, because it's, it's recounting the Islamization of Java as seen from the shores of Ceylon. It's a form of travel literature, I think, because it, it sort of guides the reader um, across the island of Java to different places um, and introduces different uh, figures and different kings. Um, and um, and it, it allows this tradition, this very, very important core Javanese tradition uh, of the Walis, of the Wali Songo, to uh, remain alive uh, in exile. Uh, so that that's that's uh, an example of one of the hikayats, which um, I think is was very significant. And from what I um, uh, from what Hussein Mia wrote in 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 one of his books, um, I think in Lost Cousins, which is uh, a book that looks at the history and and also some of the literature uh, of the Sri Lankan Malays, um, he he talks about uh, speaking with the older generation when he did his research. You know, this was about fifty years ago, so um, a lot of the people have, of course, passed away by now, and I could longer speak with them. But uh, that the older generation told him that um, this hikayat was very, very popular uh, among the Malays in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. Um, so that that's one example that also connects with uh, questions of memory and place. Uh, and another example that I can give um, is um, a poem. Uh, it's, it's actually not a shair. Shair is more of a Malay um, poetic genre. And, and the example I want to give is, is a kidung. A kidung is a, is a, is a, a genre of songs in Javanese. Um, and uh, in, in one of the chapters, I discuss a compendium of, of different texts um, that um, I came across, and and within this compendium, uh, which contains all kinds of uh, brief texts and, and snippets and uh, and genealogies, um, I came across this poem, which uh, the title of which is Kidunguru Mexo Ingwangi, and this is a Javanese song, and the the title means a song guarding in the night, um, and for me this was a very important moment because it was the first. Uh, time that I came across Javanese writing within uh, Malay manuscript. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, even though we know for a fact and we have um, uh, we, we have a lot of evidence, especially in the Dutch archive uh, from the colonial period that um, the people who came from the or who were sent from the Indonesian archipelago were very diverse and came from many ethnic and linguistic backgrounds, even though we know this, um, we have very little evidence, at least so far, uh, for linguistic diversity in the community in colonial Ceylon. Um, and certainly today, when uh, and for a long time by now, Malay became the sort of um, unifying language of this community. And so reading this compendium and coming across this poem uh, in Javanese was, was a very important moment for me. Um, and um, and so this, this poem shows us, first of all, it shows us the continuity also of this genre of Kidung, uh, that was brought along into exile. Uh, and it's written in, uh, Tembang Mochopat, which is, uh, a Javanese poetic meter. So we see that, um, the poetic meters, uh, 
continue to be used. Again, uh, we don't know if uh, we, we we don't have evidence that these kinds of poems were also written uh, uh, written anew in uh, in colonial Ceylon, but we uh, at least have evidence that um, this this kind of a kidum was um, uh, w- w- was preserved um, in exile, including uh, including the meter um, and. And this connects to what I uh, I just um, recounted about the Hikayatu Angusti. This is a poem that is attributed to one of the Walis. So the Hikayat tells the story of Sunan Giri, one of the Walis, and the poem is attributed to Sunan Kali Jogo, who is usually considered the leader of these nine Walis. And it's a it's a very well known poem. It's even well known today, and it's. Um, and it's considered a very powerful, very potent poem uh, because it was written by uh, Sunan Kali Jogo and because it's ask, asking for protection. Uh, uh, the title is um, A Song Guarding in the Night, and it's a, it's a poem that, a song that asks for protection uh, from uh, all of the things that can uh, appear in the night, in the darkness, and uh, um, threaten humans. So if it's jinns or spirits or different different kinds of spirits of spirits of invisible beings, if it's fire, if it's water, um, uh, and uh, all kinds of adversity, and so um, I think that um, for me there was a connection between this hikayat and the story of Sunan Giri and and the Islamization of Java and the uh, preservation of this poem, very important poem, potent poem by another one of the Walis in exile. Um, and we could even think of it as a kind of a, um, as, as, as a way, as a, as a request for protection. Uh, the, the singing or the reciting of this poem as a request for protection uh, in the darkness or in the night of exile um, by those who who, who read it, who wrote, re- wrote and rewrote it and recopied it um, in these manuscripts. How is that related to history, to the question that you asked me? Um, I think that, you know, this is not uh, maybe uh, straightforward history, but th- these are, and these are just, you know, two examples of, of many other texts but that are mentioned in the book. But I think that um, these two together tell us something um, about cultural, they certainly tell us something about cultural memory and about um, the kinds of, of, of texts and the kinds of um, uh, messages or um, stories or ideas, imaginings that were deemed important enough to be preserved uh, in, uh, in, the new, in the new land and in, in very uh, different circumstances. Thank you so much for, for, for that wonderful elaborate answer and what i'm really struck by as well is also the 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 idea that these texts may contain an idea of sejara or of tariq that may differ from our conceptions today of disciplinary history but it really bespeaks what the people writing them at the time thought to be important or significant for them in terms of cultural memory and I was also really struck by the heteroglossia evident in these Malay manuscripts from Ceylon and their use of Malay, Javanese, Arabic, and Arbut Amr. Um, Malay itself being an incredibly heteroglossic language itself. 
So I, mm-hmm. I, I'm just really curious about the analytical possibilities you find in analyzing diasporic culture and the preservation of language, the transmission of literary texts, and the maintenance of genres and of a script. What informed the decision to translate or preserve certain terms? And what informed the decision to use, you know, Jawi or Rumi as a script? Yes, I mean... I would also um, I would I would also love to know more about um, why certain texts were were copied uh, or selected for um, for copying or for preservation, um, and that's the kind of question that you know we can we can make assumptions. We can say, okay, this was copied, this was preserved, therefore it was important. Uh, but we have to constantly remember that we're working within a very partial and fragmented archive. Um, and this is something that I was very conscious of, uh, because, especially because of um, my methodology, which I elaborated on before, of, of sort of searching for these texts and, and knowing that every text that I find is, uh, if I may use the word serendipi- serendipity here, it's, there was a lot of you know serendipity involved. And I say that because serendipity is a word that... Um, derives from the word sarandib. Um, so there was, uh, there, there was, you know, luck. There was um, sometimes um, I might have uh, missed something very important just because I was unable to meet the right people. So um, it's, I, I hesitate, I'm, I'm saying all this because I hesitate to, to say something very conclusive about why certain texts were translated or preserved while others were not. But um, but we can work with what we have, and I think that um, I think that what we find in in these um, in these manuscripts and and the compendium that I mentioned is is a good example because it sort of contains so much in in between its two covers. But you can see similar things if if you look uh, across other manuscripts as well. Um, I I feel like these kinds of manuscripts are are like a microcosm that. Uh, tells us a lot about uh, about this history, about this community, and about including about um, choices made about what is important, what is important to preserve and to transmit um, in terms of um, Islamic texts and intellectual um, intellectual genealogies. And one of the things that we see in these kinds of manuscripts is, like like you said, the the, the combination of languages. Um, we see that. Um, all of these languages that you you mentioned yourself, uh, of course Arabic, but also uh, Tamil and and Malay and Javanese. In the few instances where where Javanese was found, they're all written in the Arabic script. So there there are four different languages uh, and maybe more written in a single script, um, which um, tells us something about again about connectivity. I mean, we were talking earlier about these connections across the Indian Ocean and across shores and. Um, and the script is definitely uh, one form of, in my, as, as I see it, of of, of a connection. Um, we see in these manuscripts that um, we we find we often find information about the owner of the manuscript or the author or the scribe, and that is one way to um, find out more about the diversity of this community, the diversity of, of this history. 
So for example, in this compendium, to which I, I, I'm, I'm speaking about the compendium because there's a, a, a chapter dedicated to it. Um, and so that's a sort of a, a very elaborate example. We find information about the owner who hails from Makassar, which is uh, on one island, the island that's now known as Sulawesi in Indonesia. But he's, he also mentions that he's a descendant of a Javanese haji. Um, we, so, so we have here something also about uh, the familial networks and the networks of pilgrimage um, and the different languages, which also represent different uh, communities, especially in Ceylon itself, where the manuscript is, is written and is put together, is assembled. Um, we, we learn something about the context between Tamil-speaking Muslims, Malay-speaking Muslims, Javanese-speaking Muslims, or ja- speaking or writing. And, of course, all of them are always, always intimately connected also with the Arabic language and, um, and, and texts that derive or are translated or transmitted um, from Arabic. Um, and we also, we also find here evidence of the way that Ceylon is situated and was situated squarely at a crossroads between, and again, this goes back to the question about the Indian Ocean world, um, situated squarely at a crossroads between the Indonesian archipelago, the Indonesian Malay archipelago, and that world, which is part of uh, such an important part of the Muslim world, and uh, on the other side, in the other direction, uh, the Middle East um, and the Arab world. Um, and, and we know this also from the history of uh, pilgrim ships uh, coming from Southeast Asia, uh, docking in Ceylon, and then go, you know, continuing on um, on the Hajj to, to the Middle East. But um, these kinds of manuscripts often uh, tell this story in, a very, in very concrete ways, again, through the multiple languages, through the use of the script, um, and through the text or bits of text and uh, and citations uh, that they contain within them. Hmm. And that that reminds me um, about this term that you employ in chapter four, Ceylon, where you ask how life in exile was imagined and understood in Java, how exile affected those left behind, as well as those returning home from Ceylon, and what meanings, tensions, and creative possibilities infuse narratives of exile. Can you talk a bit more about the word Ceylon itself or Disalangake in Javanese or Disailankan in Malay and specifically what it suggests about ideas of exile, banishment, directionality? Uh, yes, I mean, this is, this is also something that I, I sort of caught my attention early on when I started reading about, um, especially when I started reading uh, Javanese texts about this this um, uh, this period of banishment that um, and that that the word Ceylon itself, um, which is a noun, was turned into a verb. Uh, these forms Ceylon uh, kan in Malay and Ceylon aken in uh, Javanese. It's you you can you can hear that it's basically the same structure but pronounced a little bit differently uh, in the two languages. Uh, it, 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 it literally means to be Ceyloned. And at first, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a passive form, and, and the, the kan at the end is, is, a, is causative, meaning that this is something that you, 
you cause someone else, you do it to someone else. So um, this this is this is um, something that was done. Uh, it's it's described as so and so was disailankan, so so and so was exiled, so and so was Ceylon, sent to Ceylon, and 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 initially um, it probably meant. Um, just being sent to Ceylon, being banished to Ceylon, but gradually, and, and that tells us something about the centrality of Ceylon as a site of banishment, its importance as a site of banishment. Um, but then its use became more generalized, and it, and over time, it it came to mean to be banished or to be exiled. Now, these are not the only words in these languages, um, and I and I also did a, a small study about the vocabulary, the range of of words used for banishment. Um, but it's definitely one of the important terms that are used again and again. And then uh, I, I came across this um, uh, this text where, where someone was described as Disailankan ke negeri kap in Malay, which means he was Ceyloned to the Cape. So th- that, that shows us that um, Ceylon itself to be Ceylon became synonymous with exile, um, and so so that is the sort of the point about um, about um, again if we're thinking about names if we're thinking about the names the names of the place the name of the place itself uh, became synonymous with uh, with the um, act of exiling. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now in no, terms, yeah. Sorry. Uh, no, I, I just wanted uh, to, to, to say something about um, about the people left behind. But if you want to ask yes, something that's, else, that's, that's a also very good, good point to talk about um, the, the immobile and the mobile at the same time. Um, and in chapter five, you do some of that work. Um, and in, in the connection to that, I think your book also makes an important intervention in thinking about writing emotions into history and paying attention uh, as well to gender dynamics. So in chapter five, exilic journeys in time, place, and writing, um, I would like to think about the theme of exile, exilic life as depicted and remembered in Javanese texts. And how did you read into them the challenges and emotional turmoil experienced by long-term exiles returning to Java? And if you can elaborate on the gendered perspectives on exile and return in relation to that. So the notion of emotions and at the same time the gendered perspectives in connection to that yes that, that's always connected right uh, um, I mean emotions and especially emotions and women uh, we, we we tend to think of those as very uh, connected um, I I look to me this this was one of the most challenging but also most enjoyable uh, parts of the research uh, looking, um, looking for the Javanese side of the story, because even though most of my research was done in Sri Lanka, and I, I found very interesting uh, manuscripts and, and, and texts to work with, um, I, I was very uh, sort of because of my earlier work and my ongoing uh, attachment uh, to Java and to Javanese studies. I was very um, eager to, to find sort of to find the traces of this story of exile in, in, on the Javanese side. And I, I want to begin by saying that it, it, was, it was very challenging because we, we don't really have, uh, like I said earlier, we don't really have many secondary sources uh, in Indonesian or 
written in Indonesia about this this period, about the uh, experiences of the exiles. And if you go to the Javanese sources, where, where do you begin? Um, so uh, usually uh, the, the Javanese histories, which are um, often written in the, the genre of babad, uh, these babads are typically hundreds of pages uh, long and you know, they don't have a table of contents or they're not divided uh, into, into chapters or, I mean, it's, it's, it's really not easy to know where, where, where to look, uh, where to begin. Um, so I, I, I started looking at several uh, babads from, uh, from this uh, period that more or less describe this period of the, the early mid uh, 18th century. Um, uh, some of my inspiration uh, came from the work of uh, the late Merle Rickliffe, who was a very, uh, very, very uh, important, prominent uh, historian of Java, who uh, sadly passed away recently. And he wrote several books about uh, the courts of uh, central Java around this period. And so there were some hints in his scholarship as where I should where where I should look. Um, the mention of exile in these uh, babads is often very brief. Um, you you can you can often find just one or two sentences. And again, I'm, I'm talking about manuscripts of several hundred pages. You can find just one or two sentences here and there. So and so was banished to Ceylon. So and so was Ceylon. Um, and this was also a question for me. Um, if 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 this uh, experience of banishment was important, as I imagine it to have been um why why do the these um sources pass over it in almost in silence uh, or very it's it's unusual to find find a, a longer description um but again you know we, w- what we have is what we have and so one of the um very interesting passages um about exile appears in a in a well-known history which is uh, titled babad gianti uh, and uh, and I talk about this in, in in the chapter that you mentioned. And what we have there is we have uh, two women. Again, this goes to the also to the question about gender, gendered perspective. We have two women who returned from exile, um, and they visit the court. They visit the king, uh, the sultan of uh, Surakarta, um, and they are recounting to him some of their experiences in exile. And they talk about um, community. They're talking about the way that uh, the exiles came together around uh, two very charismatic uh, gurus um, in Ceylon. And they talk about the meals, that the, the communal meal that they would prepare uh, every Friday after the prayers. They talk about praying together. Um, and so this is a glimpse uh, into exilic life that we very rarely get. So so the sense of community, the sense of coming together with Muslims who are not necessarily from amongst the exiles, but it's a larger community, the charismatic teacher, the importance of the guru, the importance of, uh, of, of food, the importance of prayer, the importance of Quranic readings. So we get a glimpse of all of that. And then uh, towards the end of this uh, section, um, they also tell him about an incident, which, which you know, I, is 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 fascinating. But again, is is um, I, it's the only one I came across uh, in 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 my entire search of this type. And and it it talks about 
the guru looking at one of the, the exiles who seemed very sort of sad and lonely, and he asked him, what, what do you miss? What, what, what do you remember about Java? What do you miss? What, what, what are the things that you long for? And then this man um, talks about the fruits. He talks about the fruits and he talks about food um, that he is longing for, that he cannot uh, find in, in his place of banishment. And so this, uh, this brings together um, the very sort of mundane, the everyday, the, the, the food, the fruits, um, that uh, that he he's longing for um, with sort of the the larger framework of, um, of of cultural longing and all the things that uh, were no longer available to these exiles uh, and and at the same time the, the the comfort that they could find in the community that they created in in the relationship with a teacher and the teacher the guru uh, after he hears these these words he is able through his powers his special powers and uh, to um, make these foods available to the exile. Um, uh, they, they, they arrive miraculously from Java. And from that day onwards, every Friday, uh, the, um, they emerge. These Javanese delicacies emerge um, from the uh, sleeve, from the, 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 the sleeve of the gown that the, the guru is, is wearing. Um, and they comfort the, the the hearts of the exiles. So this is a story that is retold by these women, Javanese women returning from exile to the king. And the king uh, listens and he's in awe when he hears uh, this story. Um, an interesting uh, detail that I, I, I don't think uh, is included in the book, but uh, the, the, this description talks about tempe. You know, I, I don't know, tempe, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of a food made from uh, fermented soybeans, kind of like tofu, but also a little bit different. And this is one of the, it's very typical Javanese food. And this is one of the things that the exile misses. And so the tempe arrives every Friday in Ceylon. And then there is a section in the Javanese text that also explains that uh, on the other shore in Java, the tempe seller, um, whose tempe disappeared every Friday, and he had no idea why or where it went, he found coins uh, every Friday uh, on, the, on the shelf or in the place where uh, he put the temp the previous night. So, night. so I think that also very small detail, but it, it also tells us something about these ongoing links or connections uh, between uh, the exiles and those left behind. And sort of there's a mutual connection. It's not that the temp disappears and benefits the exiles, but the temp seller remains you know, is, 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 is left with nothing, but he is also compensated uh, for his participation in this, uh, in this network, this uh, small uh, economic network of uh, tempest selling. Um, so so one, one element of the gendered perspective is to see that the, it is the women, even though mention of exile is, mentions of exile are few and far between, when we do have a story like this, which is very rare, it is the women who tell it. And it is the women who speak about food and about cooking and about community and about relationships. Um, so I, I found that, you know, to be worthy of note that it is the women who who voice uh, these aspects, these emotion, more emotional and um, um, emotional and social uh, aspects of of the exilic experience. Uh, and the other. Uh, 
uh, mention of, of uh, an ex- uh, a gendered perspective in this chapter uh, is uh, the story of a woman who is mostly just mentioned as Putri Selong, which is the Ceylon princess. Um, and this is a woman who, uh, who also left a few traces in the archive. I mean, looking at different babads, uh, and 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 after noticing her once or twice, I, I, I was then able to find her in a few places. But um, again, um, these are just hints of her life. Um, but this is a woman who was the granddaughter of Amankurat III, the, the first uh, Javanese king who was exiled to Ceylon in 1708. She was a granddaughter and she uh, was born in Ceylon and then she was uh, she w- was sent back uh, to to Java because this is um, this is a this is a, a king whose um, a body was uh, sent back uh, for burial in Java, and along with um, around two hundred of of his descendants and 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 retinue and surviving relatives um so she she was uh as a as a young girl she was sent back to java it wasn't really back for her because she was um it was a new place for her and then later on she was um she was sent back uh to ceylon uh, with a husband and the husband passed away and she went back to java and finally she was uh banished once again along with a brother so i tried to uh, to think about her story as a woman, at first as a girl, as a young woman, and then as an older woman, who um, all of her banishments and returns uh, were uh, sort of um, determined by her rela- different rela- relationships to different men in, in throughout her life. Thank you so much for that. Um, and you provide such a rich, vivid sketch of the life worlds of these Malays in Ceylon, from their everyday life and quotidian matters to the food they eat, to their emotional lives. So let's talk a bit more about the lives of the Ceylon Malays. Um, perhaps could you elaborate a little bit on the link between Malay military affiliation and the Malay's literary culture across different modes of writing? What is the role of Kandy and other cities in Ceylon? In cultivating this relationship, and perhaps most importantly, how did people from such diverse locales like Batavia, Penang, Patani, Bugis, Banten, Aceh come to see themselves as Malay? Uh, yes. So um, I think you know we we, we often at, at, at least today uh, we don't really connect um, soldiers or military life with high literature or literary production. Um, but in the case of uh, the Malays in, in colonial Ceylon, and now I'm talking mostly about the 19th century, um, where uh, Ceylon was under British rule. So we, we really have, I mean, it's, it's in the book, it's clear, but I, I didn't really talk about it here, that we, that we were looking across two colonial uh, regimes first until um, 1795, the Dutch, and of course before that also the Portuguese, but um, my research did not go uh, that far back. But uh, in terms of the, the the story of exile and banishment and military service, uh, we're talking about the Dutch period um, until 1795 and then the British period. And so in the 19th century, the early 19th century, the, the British um, recruit 
they recruited um, they recruited Malays to their military even earlier because um, the the we have reports of um, we have British reports after the conquest of uh, Ceylon from the Dutch where they were very impressed with the um, Malay soldiers, the Malays as fighters fighting for on the side of the Dutch, and therefore they decided that they would also um, recruit them to their own military. And in the early 19th century, they established the uh, Malay Regiment, um, and that regiment plays a very important life, a very important part in uh, Malay life uh, in Ceylon until it's disbanded in um, 1873. So for you know, for several decades, many, many of the Malay men and boys enlist in this regiment. And uh, and the military is not only an important part of individual lives, but also of the community. And so what we find is that many of the manuscripts, if you look at the um, notes on the manuscripts or begin in openings and endings, um, many of the manuscripts were owned by uh, Malay uh, regiment members of the Malay regiment or uh, retirees of the regiment. Um, a lot of the reading of these manuscripts and the copying was done in the barracks or in um, the um, cantonments that were um, or the, um, the the living quarters of families uh, close to the um, military barracks. Um, we have uh, reports of uh, or, or notes in the manuscripts about manuscripts being brought back from Southeast Asia. That is when uh, these Malay soldiers were on tour, in, especially in Singapore and sometimes also uh, Malay Peninsula, places like Penang or Malacca. They would make a point of either copying manuscripts or purchasing manuscripts and bringing them back. Um, and we also have, um, we also know that there were um, schools or classes for the Malay children um, in these uh, military settlements um, where they were taught uh, the Jawi script and they were taught you know, to the, 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 the knowledge of reading the script and reading these manuscripts uh, in literature was passed on to the next generation. So we have a very uh, strong connection between uh, this um, aspect of Malay life, military life, and these military communities, and the development and, and the maintenance, the uh, preservation of, of these writing uh, traditions. Um, candy is, um, candy, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, candy has a sort of a, a long history and a very prominent place in the history uh, of Ceylon and also of uh, and colonial Ceylon. Um, the, my main point in bringing candy uh, in was that um, we we have this um, we, we we have this story of again in the relationship in relation to the military of um, Malays and there are many uh, reports on this in 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 the archive especially in the the British archive um, of Malays serving uh, on both sides serving the, the in the British military like was just mentioned now, and also serving on the side of the King of Candy. Um, and these were um, two, um, two sides at war in the early uh, 19th century. There was a series of the, the First Candian War, the Second Candian War, etc. Um, and the, the Malays, uh, as a community, lived with this, uh, these divided loyalties. On the one hand, they were 
they were a single community, but in terms of their affiliation, their military affiliation, uh, they were they often found themselves on uh, on two sides uh, of the coin, and um, it tells us something about their 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 position within uh, Ceylon society. On the one hand, it was a position of privilege um, because uh, they were they were desired as warriors, as fighters uh, on on both sides, but it's also a very, in some ways, a very precarious position as outsiders. That is, the, 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 uh, um, the king of Kandy, for example, always trusted them as his um, guards and soldiers because they were seen, ultimately, they were seen as foreigners. Um, and uh, the, the sort of the, the sort of the, the, highlight of this story about Kandy and the Malays is a story that I, I tell in one of the chapters about two brothers, the Nuruddin brothers, one of whom fought on the side of the British and the other on the side of the King of Kandy. Um, and, I, and I use that story and the sort of um, sources that talk about it from different perspectives uh, to highlight this, um, this position of the Malays within the larger um, colonial society. Um, and, and I also, I, I found it very interesting that, um, these, uh, at least one of the traditions, um, t- talks about, um, the, these, uh, Nordin brothers, uh, being buried or, or one of them at least being buried within the, um, compound of the very, very important Buddhist temple in Kandy, which is the, the temple of the tooth where one of the Buddha's teeth is supposed to be. Uh, preserved um, that that in fact it's the power of the Muslim saints of the Malay saints that um, uh, saved this temple from a Tamil tigers attack um, during during the height of the conflict in 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 Sri Lanka. So so we find here also um, this sort of these echoes of this Malay past and Malay bravery and Malay courage and Malay religious. Muslim potency um, in in also in in the places where we would expect to find it, but also which is within the Malay uh, communities traditions, but also in very unexpected uh, places. So, uh, what was the so, other thing you asked me? You oh, asked um, me another. How did people also. from these diverse locales come to see themselves as Malay? Right, right. So okay, so that that's that's. That's a, like a million dollar question, I think, because um, it's it's. I I try to I try in my book to offer explanations. I mean, I hope that uh, it, at least in some ways the the story that I tell relates to this question. Um, and of course, there is um, there is the passage of time. There is the the dominance of the Malay language um, that um, in some ways in some ways we can explain this by. Uh, thinking about the Malay as a lingua franca across Southeast Asia, and especially Muslim Southeast Asia, uh, long before this uh, episode of banishment. So the idea that people came from all over the archipelago and spoke different languages, but they also might have known, or at least some of them, uh, probably knew Malay, and this could have been a, a, a connecting link for them, a, a way to um, it to a way to communicate. Um, Across this uh, linguistic diversity, I mean, we have those kinds of explanations. We also, we also know that um, 
at least some of the people spent time in Batavia, which is now Jakarta, before being exiled or before being sent away as soldiers or as slaves, because uh, the community was made up not just of these royal exiles, but of convicts and slaves and soldiers. Um, in Batavia, um, there was uh, a Malay, a form of Malay was spoken. But still, I think uh, I think that this question is still an open question. I think we we still don't know enough about about this process. And again, for me, because I was looking mostly at written materials, at written texts, at manuscripts, um, I think uh, I think it's quite striking that we have so little, um, so little, uh, so few traces of of other uh, of other Indonesian languages um, in these manuscripts. It's may it may be because you know because what we have is relatively late is mostly from the early 19th century onwards perhaps if we had um sources from the late 17th century or early 18th late 17th or early 18th century we would find you know javanese and madurese and balinese and bugis maybe we would have a whole range of languages but based on the sources that we have today um what we we find that malay became very clearly became the most dominant language and uh, dominant idiom for this community thank you so much for that and before we move to our last traditional question can you perhaps read a paragraph from the book for our listeners uh yes sure um, okay, so th this is from the very final page uh, of the book. Uh, for Sri Lanka's history, thinking in terms of Sarandib provides a way to connect the island to other places and to Muslims ac across space and time because of the religious and historical importance of this designation and its appearance in multiple stories and textual traditions. Sarandib is a land reminiscent of paradise in its riches and beauty, a gateway, an entry point to the world as Adam first saw it. And later, with this history as background, an island favored by Muslim traders traversing the Indian Ocean, as well as many a pilgrim ship from Southeast Asia making its way to Arabia. Thus, invoking the name Sarandib offers inroads to considering the experiences and worldviews of the minority community of Malays were often marginalized in official histories and grand narratives of the island. And it also suggests going beyond the boundaries of colonial and national histories to assess Sri Lanka's place in competing and overlapping narratives of the past in the region and further afield. In this vein, a more nuanced history of Sri Lanka would contribute also to complicating Indonesian and Indian Ocean histories and historiographies. Names Sarandib, Lanka, Ceylon, bearing long histories and laden with particular sensibilities and associations, afforded a point of departure. Related to names are additional words and their etymologies. The name Ceylon transformed into a Malay and Javanese verb connoting banishment, while Sarandib inspired serendipity, associated with searching, finding the new and unexpected. These two words, deriving from the island's names, and speaking respectively to displacement and discovery, exile and fortuitous encounters, encompassed the Malay's history and the way it was remembered, retold, and imagined. Beautiful. 
Well, Bernie, we've taken up a lot of your time. So just to close off this interview, could you tell us what are you working on now um, and a little bit about your current and future projects or what you hope to work on? Uh, yes, sure. I'm, I have two projects at the moment, uh, both of which I'm sort of relatively uh, in the early stages of. One actually um, sort of grew out of um, a section uh, I, I don't remember which chapter it's in, but there's there. I think the one on, about the compendium. There is a section about interlinear translation, um, which is basically a form of translation that was very common across the Indonesian Malay world, um, also in other parts of the world. But um, uh, I um, am looking at, especially at the Indonesian Malay um, forms of this translation. And in most of these texts, what you have is an Arabic text, and then uh, large spaces between the lines, and underneath each Arabic word, um, and sometimes it's even just a prefix or a suffix, you have a translation into uh, Malay or into Japanese. Um, and so I, there is an example of that, um, a one-page example uh, in the book. And what, what I find very interesting about these uh, translations is that it, they, they offer us a translation paradigm that in some ways is very it, it seems at least very limited. It seems very narrow. It's a word for word, often very literal translation. And sometimes it's so literal that if you read the Malay sentence, it doesn't really make sense because it follows the Arabic so closely. Um, but at the same time, I feel like it opens up an entire world of uh, thinking about, um, thinking again from the very small details and then widening it into a big picture, thinking about uh, language change, thinking about um, the uh, transmission of cultural and religious knowledge, again, in its most minute details, beginning with its most minute details, thinking about the intellectual uh, transmission of ideas, um, and um, also about the script. Sometimes the um, the two languages are written in the same script, sometimes in different scripts, and there are many, many variations to this. Um, and all of this, um, all of this uh, sort of information and all of this knowledge is, uh, we could say, hidden in between the lines. Uh, so that's that's one uh, project. And the other project is um, about the Layang Ambio, which is the um, Javanese uh, textual tradition uh, that covers the biographies of the prophets of Islam. So that um, allows me to 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 stay in touch with my friend Nabi Adam because he's always the first in these uh, in these uh, collections, and so it tells the stories uh, going from Adam and all the way to the Prophet Muhammad, uh, covering the lives and the deeds uh, of the different prophets uh, in the Islamic tradition as they were uh, retold in Java. Beautiful. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored banishment and belonging, exile and diaspora in Serendip, Lanka and Ceylon, published by Cambridge University Press 2019. This is your host, Kelvin Eng. And I'm Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.